Hello, just to let you know that this episode contains strong language. So I'm in my van on the way back from Bristol to Cornwall. Uh, it's late May and restrictions have eased to the point where we can actually drive places now, which is very exciting. Um, I've just driven over the Tamar River, which divides Cornwall from the rest of Britain. And Oggy 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 is one of those things that people like to do when they come back to Cornwall and they cross over the border. Uh, but I just do it whether I'm coming or going, it doesn't matter. Um, it's one of those things I love. I've, I've put my own spin on it where I hit the roof of the van. Um, but the actual reason why I've got the recorder on is because I've just driven past the Welcome to Cornwall sign, which is a very familiar and comforting thing to see, especially after a long drive. And on it, there is the Cornish emblem, which is essentially a drawing of a shield-shaped crest, which has gold circles on it, and a chuff stood on top, which is a blackbird with a red beak, and they're native to Cornwall. And then stood either side of the crest are two very proud-looking figures. And they are a miner and a fisherman. When I was at school, this image was painted on the wall of the school hall. And I used to spend what felt like hours looking up at it, staring uh, during school assemblies. And I think in my naive child mind, these guys basically represented what you would grow up to be in Cornwall. And what is that? Well, it's a miner or a fisherman, so working class, uh, two men, and quite masculine ones, if dare I say it. And they're both white, of course. So, as a child, I thought that is what Cornish people looked like. And then, of course, I grew up to find out that's complete bollocks. As well as a coat of arms, there's a Cornish motto, too. One and all. On an agol. On the surface, this seems like a very friendly and progressive phrase. Yet what do we really mean by one and all? Throughout this series, there's been a lot of talk about the concept of community. Numerous times, contributors have told me how strong it is here, and if people are thinking of moving down, they should get stuck in but I often wonder, which community? We like to think that we're all part of one big, happy family. But actually, we all have many different, separate communities. And often, they don't talk to each other. To prove a point, I've lived here for most of my life, and I like to think that I've got a good understanding of the place. However, over the next two episodes, I'll discover that there are lots of communities living in Cornwall who go under the radar and get left out of the mainstream definition of one and all. How welcoming is Cornwall, really? Is it a progressive place? And what happens if you don't fit the status quo? Let's find out in The Reason Why.
Episode 8, Queer Cornwall. After driving past the Welcome to Cornwall sign with the miner and the fisherman, I couldn't stop thinking about masculinity, gender and sexuality within Cornwall. I was about 13 when I realised that our family friends, Sean and Chris, were a gay couple. It had never crossed my mind. Sadly, that comedy sketch, I'm the only gay in the village, from the now very dated TV show Little Britain, does often ring true in rural places. I wondered how things had changed over the past two decades. So I asked our family friend Sean, who's a costume designer, what the gay scene was like when he first arrived. There was, there was saddle tramps in St Ives. There was um, a club in Bread Street in Penzance. Uh, there was two nights in Redruth. Uh, one was in a hotel and one was somewhere else. I think there was only ever one club in Truro. I was surprised to hear this, because sadly, these days... There are no specifically gay venues in Cornwall. Is this due to a lack of demand? Do you think there are a lot of gay men in Cornwall? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of straight married men in Cornwall that have been gay or on the down low. It would be called in New York and be on the down low. Yeah, hundreds of them. There's probably more straight men to pop into the bushes, although that's difficult in the last few years, probably. <laughs> um, there's probably more straight married men that do that than there are gay men in Cornwall. I would think. I don't know whether that means they're gay or not. Do you come across quite that? When I was younger. Within public spaces, Sean has sometimes felt an unwelcomeness towards his sexual orientation. When I was out drinking in Cannibal, really, um, I did come across awkwardness if I forgot myself and chatted a straight bloke up a bit further than I would normally chat a bloke up. Um, That's got me in trouble before. Yeah. But what, that's what kind not, of not surprising. Oh, many, many fists to the face. So what's it like now? There was one person I simply had to meet. A local lad with a very Cornish name. Born and bred in Truro, where we met in the park. This is Roland Bray. I've had no more issues here than I have when I've been visiting other places. So I spend a lot of time in London, you equally get comments in the street, as you would here, like, I can take someone shouting a comment at me in the street, that's really not a problem, that's their problem, not mine. (laughs) You can state facts to me all you want about my sexuality, but it's not going to change it. There's something else I should tell you about Roland. He is arguably Cornwall's most famous drag queen. Um, So I've got a drag alter ego called Roxy Moron. Um, She's everything I'm not. (laughs) I mean, I'm a confident person, but she is... A complete narcissist. Well, I'd like to think this could be opposite of what I am. I always say, like, I don't expect to walk into a room for people to not take a picture with me in drag because I didn't spend that long getting ready for you to not stare at me, but I wouldn't walk into a room and expect all the attention on me, like now. I'd mm. hate that. Mm. But Roland would never do that. I would never do Like, you would not catch me in a million years with my T-shirt off at the beach. Wow. But I would happily sit on the beach in full drag in a bikini. I wondered how big Cornwall's drag scene was. I'd say we were, we're about under 10 now, right. which is good. Yeah. It's more than I've ever been aware of. And do you, do you communicate or is it, a fairly, is it a fairly solo pursuit? No, we communicate. It's, really, it's nice to talk to other people about different things. and It's weird being someing that's done it for such a long time, though, in comparison. 
because I don't want to be seen as a mother figure because that is not what I'm like at all. I'm not maternal in the slightest. <laughs> so that seems pretty positive. Roland went on to tell me about the progress that Cornwall Pride had been making recently. Pride now is so much bigger than it ever was before and that's all down to the, the amazing committee they've got at the moment. It felt so small when I was growing up and I don't really remember it until I kind of took a act, more active stance in it. I came to my first Pride event by myself and it was here. Wowed feels like a bit cliche but it did feel like an, a bit of an eye-opening knowing that that was kind of out there and I remember going to the gay bar when I was 18 for the first time by myself which is probably quite scary and maybe a bit silly thing to do but... Of course... At the time of recording this, there were no gay bars in Cornwall anymore, which feels strange. I asked Roland if he thought there was a high demand for a new space. I think yes and no. I think it shouldn't need to be a thing, but I think there are some people that need a safe space. I think that's really important. Whether we as a community need it at all, I agree there shouldn't need to be a separate segregated space, but some people need somewhere safe. I think that's really important. What other hopes did he have for the future? This might sound really, really cheesy, but I'd like more people to have life experience like I've had, but they don't feel the need to have to put a label on themselves or come out or... I think that would be what I'd want for people. Just a world where it's more... People can just be who they want to be without actually having to start those really annoying, difficult, difficult conversations for them. As a gay person, you have to come out all the time, forever. Well, if you choose to, I guess. And it's only going to get more prevalent as, it, as things are more dis, like discussed more in the media and are generally more pop, like publicised. I think it just opens up more conversations and people feel more comfortable to be themselves. And that's great. Who knows what the future's going to hold, but I think it's a, it can only... Well, it can't get any worse. It can yeah. only get better. Before I left, I told Roland that I'd been thinking about the Cornish crest and how it was quite a limited depiction of what Cornish identity could be. To you, what does Cornish identity mean? I think that's a really difficult question because I don't know, I don't think I could define it. Mm. Not without giving like a really probably stereotypical answer. And that's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> What's that? Like well, going oggy, oggy, oggy? Yeah, and eating a pasty. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I should pull it out my bag. <laughs> but even like Betty Stoggs. Betty Stoggs. In a nutshell, Betty Stoggs is a marketing mascot for Skinner's Brewery. One of their beers is named after a voluptuous female from Cornish folklore who was said to be so lazy and dissipated that the fairies ended up caring for her baby. A cartoon of this infamous lady is on the label of the Skinner's Ale. Then, a big burly Cornish man called Fred was asked by the brewery to dress up as Betty with rosy cheeks, ginger wig and admirable breasts. In a way... She's a bit like a female Duffman from The Simpsons. When I grew up, she was always around at social events in Falmouth. She's a reliable staple, parading the streets, greeting people and raising huge amounts of money for numerous charities. I find it really interesting because that would be such a heterosexual male-dominated environment. So to have... Yeah, beer drinking, yeah, shanty singing. Yeah, it's just really... I find it really <laughs> bizarre... I can't figure out if having a much-cherished, cross-dressing, beer-advertising, charity-raising, community figure is either really outdated or really progressive. Maybe it's a bit of both. 
Either way, I want to leave this question here for you to ponder on yourselves, because I think this topic could be a whole episode in itself, but there's other things we need to look at. I wanted to talk to someone about the issues of representation and role models in terms of gender in Cornwall. I met up online with a friend of mine who, like me, grew up in Falmouth but doesn't live there anymore. However, for very different reasons. My name's Emma Frankland. I'm an artist, theatre maker. I identify as a woman. I'm a trans woman. Um, so I use she, her pronouns. And I guess I identify as Cornish. I'd admit that I wasn't born in Cornwall. I grew up in Cornwall from the age of three. So I feel like I've got quite a strong claim to, to be from Cornwall. She now lives in Shoreham on the West Sussex coast near Brighton. She tells me how she feels much safer there. And I do feel safe in Shoreham because I feel like I'm known. And also the thing that Shoreham has that Cornwall does not have that I think makes the big difference. Brighton is a city that markets itself on being the queer capital of the UK. And certainly for trans people, I would say, despite the growing attacks on trans on the trans community that we're seeing at the moment, which is um, in- increasing and extremely worrying, but despite that, the UK is still one of the best places to live in the world if you're trans. And I would say that within the UK, Brighton is the town that you want to be in if you're trans and you're looking for, for community. So to be in Shoreham by Sea, which is adjacent to Brighton, I feel, I feel safe and secure because, you know, that permeates out. Whereas when I go into Cornwall, I just get flashback to what it was like. So what was it like growing up in Cornwall? I had long hair. That really stood me out. And so I experienced a lot of abuse for that including getting beaten up on numerous occasions and in one case in a really scary way that I look back on now and at the time I was just like yeah it's just what happens and I'm not going to walk these streets home and you know I'm going to walk this way and I'm going to get shouted at and and having to run like I remember so many times as a teenager in Falmouth running home and on one occasion getting caught and getting and getting beaten and knowing that I just had to not get pulled down onto the ground. Emma has clearly reflected on this a lot as an adult. And it's only like since Moving away, I'm like, that was about my queerness, even though I wasn't able to see that as what other people were seeing in me, but also to take that seriously as that was a thing that happened that was not okay. I often bump into Emma in Falmouth on Christmas Eve. I asked her how she found it, returning to her hometown. I have experienced as an adult coming down to Cornwall, a lot of like, anxiety and fear around what's going to happen. <laughs> what's going to happen? How am, I, how am I read? I feel like in Brighton, I get read as a trans person. People, they know what a trans person is. So everyone's like, okay, with it down in Cornwall, I'm aware that I get read as a woman, just as a woman, much more. And then there's this fear of like, what's going to happen when people realize this, this other thing, is that going to be violent? So then the violence that I'm experiencing is happening a lot inside myself of all of that anxiety that's constantly there of just being aware I've got to be aware I've got to be aware and then you know in more real terms I've just been shouted at in the street and looked at in the street and like particularly Falmouth late at night feels not safe. In 2015 a much missed mutual friend of ours Bill Mitchell went to see Emma's new solo show. 
Bill, a theatre director, invited Emma to spend Christmas working with his company, Wild Works. So then suddenly I'm down at the Eden Project and I'm, for the first time in my life, playing a role that has nothing to do with my gender being trans, that I'm just being myself. So I'm there and I'm wearing a dress and I'm playing this role and the role's about Christmas. And I had people throughout that come up to me and interact with me like I was a panto dame and be like, what's the joke? Why are you dressed like this? And I had these kind of conversations where I was in character being like, well, I'm dressed like this because it's my dress. And people getting, like on one occasion, this guy getting really angry with me because Bill was seeing me as a woman who's going to wear a dress and be there, which is what I am. And yet there was something in, there was a disconnect with the audience. That's the kind of visibility that is needed, I do think, because how do you get over that? Well, you only get over that by people seeing it and it becoming not a scary thing to them. But I guess at the same time, you're the one that has to be at the front getting asked really horrible questions. Yeah, which, which sucks. Emma hasn't worked much in Cornwall since then. However, in February just before the pandemic, she was programmed to perform her show Hearty at Falmouth University. And it was great. I didn't know if anyone was going to come and see it. I didn't know how it was going to go down. I knew that there was a big response from the student body um, who, where there's quite a large sort of representation of trans people. But I didn't know how it was going to get taken up beyond that. And I scheduled, I said to like, it was really important that as well as doing that show, I'll do it, but we've got to do a talk afterwards because I want to be able to give a context. I don't just want to come in, drop this and then leave. And so I arranged to do a talk after with a friend of mine. What came out of that was both of us talking about how difficult it was to be queer people growing up um, in Cornwall back in the 90s and how little queerness there was, how the lack of things, the lack of people to see, the lack of any reflection of our identity. But happily, what came out of that discussion was people talking about what there is now and, you know, hearing about Cornwall Pride, which like never existed, obviously, when I lived in Cornwall. And they have a bus now that drives around all the villages and then they, they all get out and they walk down the street of every village and then they go on. And I think like, oh, my God, like, so there's amazing things that are happening. And then she told me this. There's a big trans group in Camborne. Like, this is fantastic steps forward. A trans group in Camborne. That's where I live, and I had no idea. Having had this tip-off from Emma, I went and paid a visit to Safe Haven. Here's one of the founders, Paul, or Paula, who identifies as bi-gender. It started out as a coffee day. I'd kind of gone through life um, always knowing that I was kind of different. But because of my age, I was born late 50s, I couldn't come out, so I kind of went off and did all the macho stuff and joined the army and learned to be a guy, really, you know, this, this persona that you, you give off and left the army. I then lost my left kidney through a cancer tumour. Uh, and it was kind of a bit of a wake-up call. I need time was running out and I needed to go and find me. So that's exactly what I did. And then I realised there's nowhere to go. In Cornwall, yeah. In Cornwall. So I started running coffee days and then... We got enough at the coffee day then to run uh, an evening function. Um, and it just grew from there, really, didn't it? As well as the dog that you can probably hear running around, Paul was joined by his partner and co-founder, Pixie, whose pronouns are she, her. When Paul and I got together, we used to go to 
trans events in Bristol, Plymouth, Exeter, and we'd meet Cornish people at these events, you know. And I was still living in Devon at the time, and I used to say, what the hell are you doing all the way up here? And it's like, well, there's nowhere to go in Cornwall. And I remember saying to Paul, there's got to be somewhere. Don't be ridiculous, you know. But there wasn't. <laughs> there just wasn't. When you've got nowhere to go, you don't go anywhere. So they're what we call bedroom walkers. They're the people who dress and stay home and just be themselves at home because they've got nowhere to go. You give people a, a safe, private venue so they can go and spend time with other people who feel like they do. And then word gets out and you talk to people online. We've got our website, we've got our Facebook group and we're always getting new people along saying, I thought I was the only one. Yeah, <laughs> you sure. know. Pixie and Paula told me how they'd easily been in touch with hundreds of people since forming. Before COVID, they would host regular band nights in their clubhouse, known as the Batcave, which coincidentally is home to Paul's extensive Batman memorabilia collection, possibly the largest in the UK. On a good night, they'd see around 50 to 60 people from the trans community turn up for a good old social, something that is clearly much needed here. Because we're so rural, an awful lot of trans people assume they're the only one. We hear this all the time. I think I'm the only one in Red Roof. No, you're really not. Yeah, we get somebody in Red Roof messages, and I think I'm the only trans in Red Roof. No, trust me, you're one of the 36. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, you know. But because we're rural, because we don't have a big voice, because it's seen as a holiday destination, because we got... Because of the, I mean, what was it um, George Eustace said? He was surprised to find a transgender charity in his gritty part of Cornwall. That's George Eustace that said that, the Conservative MP for Camborne, as well as the Environment Secretary. On that note, I was curious if Paula thought Camborne was any different to other places in terms of their bi-gender experience. If I was in a dress walking through London, nobody would batter an eyelid. Mm. If I'm in a dress walking through Campbell, everybody notices. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the difference. And you don't care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, how do you find that? Do you, do you go through Campbell? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I particularly find Campbell very, very good. I can't stress enough how good the people in Campbell have been, to be quite honest. But we do know of instances in Campbell that, that were have not happened. good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, Paula, if Paula sees anybody clocking her, or doing the double take, she smiles and waves, or speaks to them. That throws them completely. Yeah, you know? hits it head on. And that's what we do here. Yeah. Hits it head on. Confidence is infectious. We'll go out, and a group of us will go out, and the ones who are shyer and more reserved and, and aren't so confident in public, if they go out with two or three others that are confident, then their confidence builds. Mm. And then at some point we get a phone call to say, I've just been in Tesco's on my own, you know, which right. is huge. You know? And yeah. then they get the confidence to go to the GP and say, can I change my name? Can I change my pronouns, please? However, when it comes to this, there's a shocking lack of services for gender support in Cornwall. How long do you think you'd wait? If you went to your GP today hmm. and you were referred to the gender clinic in Exeter, how long do you think you'd have to wait for your first appointment? How long do you think? Four or five months? A year at the worst? Nearly seven years. It's your first appointment. That's your first appointment. And all that is, is information gathering. That's why, filling out all the forms. Why is that? Because there's such a high demand? or there's Because they're rubbish. Support? Because they only saw two new patients last year. Yet yeah, they've got a list this long. I bet they have, yeah. <laughs> they've got a massive list. It's meant to be 18 weeks. Nearly seven years. And that's for your first appointment. And after your first appointment, you have to wait at least two years for your second appointment. Again... 
I brought up the issue of gender conformity with Pixie and Paula in response to the Cornish crest. Pixie told me the story of one very local person and their battle to truly be themselves. We had somebody come here back along and they said, oh, I'll never be able to come out. I said, why not? I said, well, I've grown up in our village my whole life. My family been there 400 years. Everybody knows me, my dad, my granddad, my children, this, that. I can never come out. I said, okay, all right then. So kept coming here. And then came and day and uh, he said, here, he said, I went to our local Tesco. I said, did you? Okay, so yeah. I thought, sod it. They know me. If they can't accept me for me, what the hell have I lived here all my life for? And he said, you know what? Nobody said anything. I said, well, what did you expect them to say? He said, well, I was expecting them to say, here, what, you know, what do you look? He said, they didn't. He said, and people smiled at me. You mean he went to Tesco's? In female mode. Yeah. Yeah, went, went as herself. And he said, and people were fine. He said, and then I had, he said, I told some friends and they called me brave. He said, I didn't think I was brave. He said, I don't see it's being brave. He said, I just thought, well, I've lived here all my life. You know, I'm a part of this place. And where's he at now? Still there. She is still there. The bottom line is you only travel this earth in this form once. All right. You can't, you can't spend your entire life pretending to be something you're not because that really screws your brain. 84% of transgender people had attempted suicide because living a lie is so hard. You imagine every morning getting up and looking in the mirror and seeing your mother looking at you and you've got to be that person in that mirror. You've got to act like that, you've got to behave like that, you've got to, you've got to be what society expects you to be because of how you appear and inside you're a guy screaming to get out and you do that every day. Everyone gets to a point, you just can't do that anymore. Once you've looked at it and you've accepted that you're gender variant, you've accepted that your, your brain gender doesn't match your physical gender, once you know that, you can't unknow it. And it gets stronger. The older you get, the stronger it gets. I realise that we've only begun to scratch the surface when it comes to gender politics in Cornwall. I also fully acknowledge that there are many voices missing from this episode, particularly that of the cis-lesbian community. I regret this. Alas, the 30-minute time limit has beaten me, so here's hoping for a fully funded second series, eh? There's so many more stories I could include in regards to the subject of queer Cornwall. However, I now want to seriously change tack. In the next episode, we'll talk about religion. Charles and John Wesley brought Methodism to the working classes in the 1700s. Their impact still lives on to this day, with Methodist chapels scattered across the landscape. Yet there are more other faiths here nowadays than you might think. What happens to these chapels if they're no longer used? Are there any mosques here? And how does the media shape our view of world religions? Find out next time on The Reason Why.
The Reason Why was written, presented and produced by Seamus Carey. The music was by him too. Additional production on the theme tune was by Mr. B.J. Jackson. Graphic design by Philida Blumel. Photography by Steve Tanner. Special thanks to all our contributors as well as the Holman Climax Male Voice Choir for the sampling of their 1974 album, The Reason Why. The associate producer was Charlie Bunker. The executive producer was Paul Dodgson. This was an impossible producing and Seamus Carey production funded by Arts Council England.